So let me ask you, what, what motivates you to pray? I mean, what kinds of circumstances act as a prayer prompter for you? Well, as I was thinking about this, a particular time of desperation when I prayed without ceasing came back to me while driving by Canada's Wonderland on my way to the church uh, these many days that I come down to the office. The occasion that came back to me was when a new roller coaster, the Bat, had been uh, added to the coaster fleet at Canada's Wonderland. It included several loops and a couple of corkscrews as well as the normal up and down stuff. But those of you who have been to Canada's, Canada's Wonderland and perhaps have ridden the bat will know that the unique feature of this coaster is that after you've gone through all of those loops and twists and turns, you're hurtled through the whole ride again backwards. Well, I'm a kind of a roller coaster freak. The more loops and turns and drops, the better as far as I'm concerned. Although I must admit that I'm having some second thoughts about this new dive roller coaster that has been brought to Canada's Wonderland this year. Uh, Anyway, on the day that uh, when we went to the park, I was determined that I was going to ride this new coaster, the Bat. Well, Janie's not too much into roller coasters, not as much as as I am, so she stayed off the roller coaster with our youngest son, who chose not to ride. Well, I rode the coaster with our other children and had a blast. When we got off, our youngest son was standing there with this huge look of disappointment stretched across his face. He had changed his mind, and he wanted to go on the ride. Well, having ridden it once, the other kids were not keen on going again. In hindsight, they must have known better. Well, come on, said I put my I said I put my arm around his shoulder and we climbed back on the roller coaster and the ride began. And as soon as that ride began, my body gave off signs that it wasn't really feeling up to this. <laughs> and I had that terrible sensation that this was not going to be pleasant. The thought of going through all those loops and twists and turns forwards and then again backwards was making me sick, literally. It would not be a pretty sight if I lost my cookies at the top of one of those loops. And so I find myself praying, Oh God, don't let me be sick. Oh God, make this ride over fast. Oh God, if you get me through this, I will go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. Just don't let me throw up. And you know, as I thought about my experience on that roller coaster. It occurred to me that many times our prayers are prompted by the desperate messes that we get ourselves into. Oh God, help me pass this test. I I know I should have studied more. Oh God, please don't let that police officer stop me. I know I've had too much to drink. God, if you help me seal this deal, I'll go to church every week. Oh God, get me out of here. Oh God, don't let me die. And in His mercy, God answers these prayers many times. I wasn't sick. Although when I got off the ride, I stumbled toward the nearest bench where I collapsed for about half an hour while my body recovered. And I haven't been on that ride since. (laughs) Too often, if I'm really honest with myself... I see prayer as a lifeline to grab onto when I'm about to crash head-on into the reality of my bad decisions. And I don't think I'm alone here. I've often heard others 
pray enough to conclude that prayer can easily become an escape mechanism by which we only ask God to save us from our problems. And again, although there may be some legitimacy to these kinds of prayers from time to time, I'm convinced that Jesus had much more in mind when he looked at his disciples and said, when you pray. After having taught his disciples that what well-being in God's kingdom truly looks like, the Beatitudes, and how to live from the goodness of a kingdom heart, Jesus moved next to talk about a life in constant interaction with God. Prayer is the primary factor in leading to healthy growth in God's kingdom values. And for this reason, it needs to come from a heart that has been captured by God alone. Os Guinness, in speaking of the Puritans who made their way to the new world, has stated that they lived their lives as if they stood before the audience of one. This could serve as the general theme of the next section of Jesus' hillside talk that we want to look at in instructing his followers on creating a culture that reflected kingdom values. Jesus was, in essence, telling them to live as if the only one whose opinion mattered was God's. In order for this to become a reality in their lives would mean building habits of privacy with God. A recurring statement of Jesus in this section of his talk we will look at today is to live our lives as if God were the only one watching. So much of the religious activity carried on by the religious leaders of Jesus' day was done to impress others who were watching. And I don't think we are immune to the possibility of carrying out religious practices approved of in our church circles to gain the recognition of others. The Apostle Paul speaks of these acts of religiosity as performing eye service. In other words, we respond in a particular way to gain the favor of those who are watching. And when this happens, God is pushed aside in favor of winning the approval of a visible audience. To avoid the trap of marching to the drumbeat of what others think, Jesus told his followers to be sure that their acts of worship were done from a heart devotion that says to God, for your eyes only. Then we will be liberated from slavery to the eyes of others when we give or pray or fast or preach or raise our hands in worship or don't raise our hands in worship or show acts of kindness or whatever we do. We determine to live our lives privately before God and then it does not matter what others may think or whether they see us or not. When we learn to live constantly in this way, Jesus says that our Heavenly Father, who sees what is done in private, will reward us. Now, perhaps the most intimate playing for, the audience, for an audience of one takes place when we pray. For this reason, I have chosen to focus my talk today on what Jesus taught after addressing his disciples with the word, when you pray. We may conclude from this statement that Jesus assumes his followers will pray. He didn't tell them they ought to pray or chastise them for not praying. He simply acknowledged his expectation that they would, in fact, pray. His intention was to instruct them to pray in a way that would assure them of getting a hearing with God. Here Jesus gives some of the most specific instruction on prayer that we will find in Scripture. He tells us, when you pray... Pray secretly, pray specifically, pray sincerely. 
For Jesus, prayers that God hears are often, with, are often spoken with him alone as audience. And so Jesus begins his instruction on prayer with the call to pray secretly. He states, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus contrasts the way his followers were to pray with that which usually took place among the religious. They did their praying where it could be seen by others, where they could gain recognition by people. Hypocrites is what Jesus called these religious types. The term hypocrite was originally used for actors on a Greek stage who put on various masks to play different roles. Obviously, Jesus is against praying in any way that masks the true condition of the heart. How easy it is when others are around to pray in order to impress. I have a friend who, whenever he prayed in public, would, would, would change his voice. I mean, he would, he would take this deep, resonating, pious-sounding tone with his voice. We had a good enough relationship that I said to him one day, So, what's with this voice? He admitted that he didn't realize he made this switch in his tone of voice. He remembered when he attended church growing up that that's how some of the most respected elders in the church sounded when they prayed. To avoid the trap of trying to impress people, Jesus says to find a place where you can be alone with God, just the two of you. And in this secret place, pray with God as your only audience. There are several advantages, I think to praying in this way. A secret place helps to avoid distractions. When you pray in a private place, it pretty well ensures there will be a minimum of of distractions. I think that uh, Jesus understood that, that people easily get distracted in their praying, and so he counsels, find a place, a place alone, find a quiet place, a place where you can pray without interruptions, and there pray to your Father in heaven. Then in a secret place, I can be brutally honest with God. I find that I'm pretty cautious about what I reveal about my personal life when praying in public. But in the safety of a private place, alone with God, I can open up and talk with him about my struggles. I have found God to be a wonderful friend to whom I can tell my innermost thoughts and the secret intentions of my heart. In a private place, in a private audience with God, I am not worried about what impression I will make. And then the secret place can become a sacred meeting place with God. There's there's something to be said, I think, for establishing a routine where you meet with God regularly in the same spot. After a while, it becomes a place where you look forward to going as you experience intimate fellowship with God in prayer. Now that we have finally settled into our new house, I am eager to find that secret place. In the past, I've been drawn to a place with a flame, a a fireplace or a lighted candle. The flame reminds me of my desire for God to keep the flame of my first love burning brightly. And so this place has become a holy place for me, a place where I look forward to going as I connect with God. 
If you want to deeply connect with God in life change communion, find a secret place, a quiet spot where you can shut out distractions, where you can be open and honest with God, and where you can establish holy ground on which to meet. It doesn't have to be a fancy place. It can be a laundry room or an office or a bedroom or the front seat of your car for that matter. Just as long as it is quiet and familiar. Go there often. Every day, if you can, at the best part of your day, when you feel most alert, whether that is in the morning or evening or mid-morning or afternoon, whatever time best allows you to pray to God in secret. For when you do this, the Father who sees you in this secret place will delight you with the warmth of his presence. But after Jesus told his disciples to pray secretly, he instructs them to pray specifically. He states, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus warns here, I think, of mindless praying, in which we spout out words without giving any specific thought to what we are actually saying. Babbling is how Jesus describes it. The meaningless repetition of words or phrases in a mantra-like fashion, hoping that if we say them enough, God will eventually hear. We have a tendency to pick up on certain phrases or words that sound really spiritual and repeat them many times without thinking about what we are actually saying. Sometimes I hear people pray, Lord, be with me as I travel here or have this interview or write this test. And I want to stop them and ask, why are you praying for something that God has already said that he will do? If we have committed our lives to God and are walking in his ways, he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is there all of the time. Jesus would tell his disciples, surely I am with you always. Words that still remain true for Christ's followers today. And so asking God for something that he has already said he will do is perhaps one form of babbling we can avoid. Rather, we should ask God to make us alert to his presence with us so that we may go in the confidence that he is there. Well, Jesus continues his instruction by giving an example of how we should pray. He writes, he states, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now we often refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, don't we? I grew up starting every day in school by reciting this prayer. That's, of course, long gone. When I was asked to preach a series of messages in what may be identified as a more traditional church by us, there was a part of their rhythm in worship when the congregation would join their voices in unison to pray the Lord's Prayer. This practice has all but disappeared in churches where I typically minister. Not long ago, I asked some of our grandchildren if they knew the Lord's Prayer, and they just looked at me with this blank stare. So let me take us on a revisit of this prayer pattern that Jesus sets out before us. Jesus' way to pray begins with the acknowledgement that we are addressing God as a person, as our Father. And so we pray to a personal God. To follow Jesus' instruction and pray, Father, in doing that, I am expressing my belief that God actually exists, 
that he wants to hear from me, that I can talk with him and he will talk to me, that he cares for me more deeply than I can ever understand, that I am his child and he knows my name. And then pray with respect to God's mission. That's the second part of this prayer that Jesus has set out for us. Jesus instructs us to pray that God's name will be honored, that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This tells me that my prayers are not to be consumer-oriented. In other words, prayer is not about me getting my way, getting what I want, rattling off my list of requests. Prayer is to be a statement of intention to take Christ's mission into the world. It is to be missional in its purpose. It is a calling of ourselves to action, an acknowledgement that we play a part in the advancement of God's kingdom and a giving of ourselves to fully fulfilling God's purposes. And so we pray with those things in mind. And then when we begin to pray with respect to God's mission, we soon discover our inadequacies. And therefore, Jesus tells us to ask God for his provision. Here is the test of prayer. Do I believe that God is able to supply my daily needs, and so I ask boldly, expecting to, him to hear? Do I believe that God is able to forgive me of all of my sins, even the ones I find myself doing again and again, and humbly confess my failure to obey him without holding back? And do I believe that God is stronger than any temptation I face and is able to deliver me from the attacks of the evil one on my life? In our fight against sin and temptation and Satan, God has given us the privilege to ask for deliverance, protection and power to overcome the forces of evil that threaten to destroy us. I find this to be a tremendously helpful, especially if I am facing a situation where I know that I am weak or if I'm feeling particularly vulnerable due to fatigue from battling on with the enemy of my soul, I can ask God to keep me from going down a road I don't want to go down, or deliver me from the attacks of the evil one. I need to take advantage of this privilege more often than I do. And so Jesus instructs us to ask. Ask your Father in heaven to bring his power and provision to bear upon your life. He is able to provide. And more than this, He is willing. And finally, Jesus instructs us to yield to God's purpose. The concluding statement of the Lord's Prayer seems to have been added to later manuscripts of the Gospels, but is generally accepted as being an appropriate inclusion. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The end result of all prayer is to move the hand of God to accomplish His purposes for His honor and glory, causing us to say, Amen, so be it. God, You work out Your sovereign purposes. I give way to Your authority. So prayers that God hears are specific. They are addressed to a specific person, our Father in Heaven. They are given for a specific reason, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. They include specific requests. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from the evil one. And they ex are expressed with a specific view in mind for the revealing of God's power and glory. 
Well, so far we have noted that Jesus' instruction on prayer that God hears calls us to pray secretly, pray specifically, now pray sincerely. And so as Jesus wraps up his talk on prayer, he makes references to two practices I think are designed to show how sincere we are in the matter of prayer. Forgiving others and the practice of fasting. And so Jesus states, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. If we are sincere, and if we sincerely desire God to hear our prayers, then we will make sure that there is no one from whom we are withholding forgiveness. For Jesus to move right into the topic of forgiveness immediately following his instruction on how to pray would suggest that he is saying nothing hinders God from hearing our prayers like our unwillingness to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. If we are harboring bad feelings towards someone and are not willing to forgive them, Jesus tells us that God cannot listen to our prayers. The only prayer he will listen to and accept is a prayer of confession on our part. And so if we are sincere about prayer, we will live with a forgiving attitude towards others. Jesus then went on to say to his disciples, and when you fast, and again it would seem as if Jesus is just assuming that his followers will in fact fast. What was needed was instruction on how to fast in a way that would lead to centering down on God. This was missing in the practice of fasting as taught by the religious leaders at the time of Jesus' hillside talk. And whenever there is a religious practice that is devoid of God-centeredness, legalism will always take over. Because legalism always carries with it a sense of manipulative power. And so Jesus again points out that fasting in and of itself is not the issue. If we only fast to somehow coerce God into giving more physical benefits or success in prayer or spiritual insights, we have allowed God to be dislodged from the center of our attention. John Wesley has stated, First let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly fixed on Him. Let our intention herein be this, and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now fasting is all but slipped from the spiritual disciplines practiced by most Christ followers these days. I would guess that few of us fast as a regular part of our spiritual development. But before you blow off fasting as having no relevance to your spiritual health, I would challenge you to stop and think about what Jesus is saying here. It seems to me that he is embracing fasting as a valuable discipline for his followers, even though many around them at the time that Jesus gave his instruction missed the point. I have to conclude that there is still significant spiritual value in this discipline that makes it worth taking another look by those who are serious in their devotion to God. Fasting can have a profound place in helping us to focus on God as our source of strength and salvation. 
It is an exercise of admitting that God is able to provide for our well-being and is sovereign over everything that takes place in our lives. Now, most often, fasting involves going without food for a period of time. However, the Apostle Paul acknowledged that married couples may on occasion refrain from sexual intercourse for a time in order to devote themselves to prayer. But he cautions that this fast from sex would only be done by mutual consent and for an agreed upon time so that Satan will not tempt them because of their lack of of self-control. And so fasting then, I believe, can refer to many practices of self-denial. There have been times when I have fasted from television uh, watching, refraining from viewing TV for uh, a while and using the time to to devote myself to God in reading and prayer. While I tried to fall asleep last night, my wife was following the raptors on uh, on her phone. And uh, as she was following, she, she was looking through some of the tweets that came up. And there was a, a, a Muslim friend who, who actually tweeted that he was, he was uh, bemoaning the fact kind of that he was not going to be able to watch the entire Raptors game because he had to become involved in the prayers of Ramadan. And uh, I thought, isn't that interesting? I wonder how many of us would be willing to forego that to uh, engage in uh, some uh, form of of, of fasting and prayer. Um, So there's there's other ways of of fasting uh, than uh, refraining from from, uh, food or drink. I've known some who've fasted from shopping (laughs) and uh, and, and, and all. Um, So to a great extent, fasting reveals the things that control us. I think. I mean, how easily we begin to allow non-essentials to take precedence in our lives. How quickly we can become enslaved by things that we really don't need. And so fasting helps us to find and keep balance in our lives. So let me give you a little challenge here this morning. I would suggest that you give consideration to observing what is often called a Sabbath day's fast one day this coming week. This would be a a 24-hour fast starting after supper one day and lasting until supper the next day. Before choosing the day you will observe a fast, you will need to decide on what form this fast will take that you will observe. It may be to refrain from eating one or more meals and taking that time to pray. If you have young children, you may choose to do a partial fast by limiting the amount of food that you eat and talking about those who are less fortunate and have little or no food to eat, such as the homeless or children in third world countries. You could talk about how they matter to God and pray for them or take some action to relieve their hunger. I'm sure that with a little creativity, you could make this into a meaningful experience with your children. Or if foregoing eating is not your fast of choice, you may refrain from a particular activity in order to devote yourself to prayer for a time. What I'm challenging you to do is to give fasting a try as a way to nurture your relationship to God, as a way for you as followers of Jesus to focus your energies on responding to God as the center and sovereign initiator of all you do and are. Give it a try. Let me know how you do. 
email me, Pastor Dave at rexdalealliance.ca. Well, in conclusion, let me say that Jesus makes it clear that God hears prayers that are private, that are specific, that are sincere. He tells you that prayer is the way to unpack your Heavenly Father's prevailing presence in your lives. It is the way to discover God's good purposes for you. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then sooner or later you have to pray, consciously and consistently. Then and only then will your adventure in intimate communion with Almighty God take flight, and you will know the refreshing release of living out your life before an audience of one. Stand with me as we pray. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you could not have touched on a topic that touches us more deeply than this topic of prayer. We hear so much about it. We talk about it. In fact, many times in our experiences, prayer is the first thing we talk about, but it's the last thing we do. Because we try to fix things ourselves. We think that we're able in, in, in all. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would capture our hearts today with your intent as you gave this instruction to your disciples, but to us as well. That we might fully understand this privilege that we have to call out to our Father in heaven. Hallowed is his name. Let his kingdom come on my, in my life. Let his will be done in me as it is in heaven. And so we pray that you will help us not just to talk about it, not to feel guilty when we don't do it as often as we think we should, but just to be released in order to know that we can live our lives openly, honestly, forthrightly before an audience of one our Heavenly Father. And so I pray that as we come to that understanding, that you will take this with you as you leave today. This Father to whom we pray in heaven loves you deeply. He does not look with judgment upon you. He looks with grace and love and mercy. And the amazing thing is he wants to hear you talk with him. He wants to have a conversation with you. Prayer is not a one-way conversation. So embrace this privilege. Work it into your lives every moment of every day. May you take time to reflect upon the fact that God is listening. And so go with the understanding that God goes before you and he walks with you in your journey. In the name of Jesus, amen.